If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Esther chapter 2. We're going to blast through two chapters today, and so you're welcome to use your Bible to do some fact-checking, make sure I'm not saying anything heretical. Uh, One thing that I've challenged folks to do these last few weeks is to read through these passages of Esther uh, throughout the week, because we've got 10 chapters in this book, and we've got four weeks to cover the bulk of the 10 chapters. The fifth week, we're going to take a different look at the book through a different lens, and so we're going to be going super quick through this text, and so this morning, our text will take us um, from chapter 2, verse 9 or so, after Esther gets pulled into the palace, um, through the course of events in chapter 3, and uh, in the beginning of chapter 4, where kind of the whole story begins to catalyze. And so if, if you weren't here last week, you can jump online and listen. We've been starting to talk about the fact that sometimes God puts us in places and calls us to speak up uh, against things that are, are dirty or gross or bad or sinful or evil that are happening. And so the challenge last week for all of us was to, to open our eyes or to ask God to open our eyes to, to where there are places in this world that, that there's pain, that there's brokenness, that, that God might call us into. And so hopefully you've done that a little bit this week and not been totally scared by what you saw. Today we jump into Esther 2 verse 9 and following, kind of talking about the stakes that exist when we step into this place of being used by God to change the world. And the question I have for us as we dive in this morning is, who do you picture when you hear the phrase world changer, you know, maybe you, you picture someone like Martin Luther King Jr. who can stand up in front of crowds of people, give eloquent speeches, make charges to change the planet for liberty, right? Those kinds of things. Someone who's just an orator, uh, an inspirational type A type leader. Maybe you picture that. Or maybe you picture someone on the flip side of that spectrum, like a Mother Teresa character. Uh, Someone who devotes her life to to serving others quietly, to to being not uh, noticed, to being in the shadows and the slums, serving people who are the least of these. Someone who who changes the world through their compassion, through their efforts of grace. Now, the real question I'm wondering is when you picture world changers, how often do you picture you? Uh, Do you picture the person you see when you look in the mirror in the morning? I would guess that most of us don't consider ourselves changers of the world. And you might be thinking that we're about to embark on a sermon where I'm going to tell you that we're all world changers and let's storm the gates of hell. I don't think we're all world changers like Martin Luther King, like Mother Teresa, like these people who who stand up and stand out for generations and are known by by everyone around the world. And I think when it comes to changing the world, most of us feel like we belong in the shadows. And we think, I'm not, a, I'm not an activist. I'm not even an extrovert. <laughs> I can't go across the, the street and change my neighbor, let alone the world and change Calcutta, let alone get up in D.C. or march on Washington, right? I can't. I'm not that person. I, I live quietly. I try not to make waves. I try not to be noticed. I see places where the world needs changing, like we talked about last week, but I'm terrified to step into them. And if that's you, you are not alone. The book of Esther is written about a woman who does not march into the citadel of Susa picketing. She doesn't come with a prepared speech. She doesn't come saying, I'm going to change this city. Esther gets dragged into the city as a slave and tries and tries and tries just not to be noticed. Don't let people know what her ethnicity is. Don't let people know what her religious background is. Don't. She doesn't even seem like she's trying to win this contest to become the queen. She's just humble 
behind the scenes, quietly being used by God to change an entire civilization. Now, if you're a note taker, you can write this down. This is not like rocket science or anything, but sometimes God puts people who are not world changers right in the middle of a world that needs changing. Sometimes God puts someone like you in a workplace that needs to be transformed. Hey, I'm not not an advocate for change. Sometimes God puts someone like you in a family that has some issues that need to be addressed. And you say, well, listen, I'm not the kind of person who draws out that stuff. I, I avoid the conflict. I try to just stay at peace with all people, like the Bible says. Sometimes God puts people who are not, by nature, world changers, right in the middle of a culture, of an environment, of a city, of a workplace, of a community, of a government that needs, that needs radical transformation. So the question I want to ask as we embark on this text journey today through Esther 2, 3, and 4 is why does he do that? And, and what do you do when you're not a world changer and yet you're starting to feel like God might want to be using you to change the world? Now, the book of Esther is interesting because we see a number of different characters. We see Esther, but she, she's pretty quiet. She doesn't even talk till like chapter 4, right? She's underground, behind the scenes. We see her uncle Mordecai introduced before she is. Before Mordecai is introduced, we even see Vashti. We see this history of people in the book, the first three chapters, who are all standing up and trying in some way to speak truth to power. And every time in the book so far, it doesn't go very well, right? Vashti stands up and And she says, no, to the king, I'm not going to come and parade myself in front of your drunk buddies, right? And she gets thrown off of the throne, and a new queen is found for her actions. Mordecai has an opportunity to speak up in a way that helps the government, and they applaud him there. But then because of Mordecai's faith, he finds himself in a predicament where this evil person named Haman rises to power, and everyone starts bowing down to him. and, And Mordecai is thinking... I can't do that. Like, I'm a God-fearing man. I'm not going to bow to some human. I bow to God alone. But what's happened to everyone else who stood up against the powerful government in this book? What happened to Vashti? Right? Mordecai knows that he was praised for his last efforts, but it's only because he honored and championed and celebrated the government. There's a risk that when there's a culture in place that has evil roots, Or when there's a workplace in place that has a a hostile culture, when there's a family environment that's happening where there's sin that's kind of permeating throughout the family, when there's a church environment and there's hostility there, when you stand up and become the person to resist change, everyone pushes back against you. One of the big reasons that we don't want to be the person who stands up and blow the whistle at work is because of what happens to the other people who stand up and blow the whistle at work. They're all looking for work, right? They're all out of a job. We see what happened last time the Christian person in our life tried to stand up and speak truth in this environment, and they just got laughed out of town, and it only solidified the heckling of the enemy in a sense. You might see some issues in your family that need to change, but, but you know that your family is very resistant to the type of conversation that you feel compelled to have against them. You know what will happen because you've seen it happen before. You have a vision of a more just and equitable society, and yet... You see how uphill that battle is, and every time you you see people try to push the ball uphill, eventually they get smashed and the ball rolls back down again. We see Mordecai caught in the crosshairs. 
Because for him, it's a choice. Am I going to bow down to this man, Haman, and in so doing, dishonor my God, right? This isn't like a choice. Am I going to go and make a speech? It's, am I going to do something that violates my conscience before God? And he comes to a place where he just says, I, I can't do it. We, we see this. This is in chapter 3, uh, verse 2. It says that all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. There was a command from the top that all people would kneel before this government official. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. He just couldn't do it. I think that the thing that Mordecai understood, and I think the thing that we need to understand as we start to, to figure this out together, is that as we're trying to evaluate whether or not we should stand up for what is right, we need to remember that on the other side of whatever action God calls us to take, we need to evaluate ourselves not on the results, but whether or not we obeyed the Lord. Right? Mordecai is sitting there, and he knows what happens to the type of people who disobey the government, and yet his conscience is saying, well, if I don't honor the government, I'm, or if I, don't, if I honor the government, I'm not honoring my God. And so for him, all the data points to the fact that if he takes a knee, he'll be shipped out of the city and maybe killed. But at the end of the day, he decides that I'm not going to do what I think think is going to provide the best results for me. I'm going to do what's going to honor God the best. You know, the reason that this is a good perspective to take when you're someone who God is calling to, to make changes is because most of the time or many times or a lot of the times or at least some of the times when we follow God and do the thing he's calling us to do, it does not end well for us. Like what you would hope what would happen is that when Vashti stood up to the king, she would be applauded for it. What you hope would happen is that when Mordecai refuses to take a knee, that everyone would come to their senses or say, you know what? I love the fact that you're following your religious convictions. What we would love is to go to work and stand up or go into our family gathering and stand up or go into our neighborhood and stand up or take a stand in the school that we're in or whatever it is. We would love to do that and have everyone say, thank you for speaking truth. It's refreshing. But most of the time, that's not what people say when we do what God has called us to do. And it was no different for Mordecai. In chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, it says that when Haman, this government official, saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Mordecai's actions did not just result in his execution. Mordecai's actions resulted in an edict that was made that every Jewish person in the entire country would be the victim of genocide. This is the ripple effect. This is why we don't act. Right? Haman gets his cronies together, and they start talking through this. They make a plan, right? They, like, cast a lot. Uh, Esther, the book of Esther, kind of revolves around this biblical feast of Purim, uh, which is, means the lots that are cast. And the whole spark for this book is that this, this die is cast, this lost, it, lot is tossed, and this date comes up. And Haman says, okay, on this date... 
We're going to go forth and kill every Jewish man, woman, and child in the face of this country. We are going to destroy them all. And so then Haman goes to the king and he says, listen, I'll give you money if you let me kill all the Jews on this date. And the king says, I don't need your money. Do whatever you want. And so he gets the king's signet ring of approval. And Mordecai's simple act of government defiance results in these people going out throughout the entire country preparing to decimate his entire race. Right? This is the reason we don't stand up to power. <laughs> because even if we're being selfless, it's not about us. Because a lot of times we stand up at work and we speak truth as a whistleblower, and it's not just that we get fired, but the, the workplace clamps down on people like us, and it gets worse for everyone else. Now, sometimes we live in a community where we have this ethic where we say, don't make waves, like Mordecai was saying to Esther, don't make waves, don't show me your identity, just be, go with the flow, right? Because if we try to speak up for our people, it's just going to get worse for our people, right? And so it's better to live under the radar. You don't care if your family doesn't want to hang out with you, maybe, maybe you get to that point. But your family's going to kick you out of the family and then hate Christians because of you. And you don't want to give Christians a bad name. And we think these stories even in the Bible, right? We think of Moses going to Pharaoh. And it doesn't make things better. It makes things worse. Pharaoh says, what, these people want freedom? They're lazy, right? Make them make more. Less straw, right? More bricks. Sometimes the reason that we think it's foolish to stand up it's because when we stand up, it's not only fruitless, and it's not only bad for us, but there's a ripple effect of our courage that brings negative consequences to everyone else that we love. I wonder what the Jewish people were thinking about Esther in this moment. Now, I've tried to kind of put myself in the, the shoes of the Jewish folks who live throughout the country, right? And as they're whispering in their communities and talking about the fact that one of them is now the queen, I wonder if they're saying, well, no, this is perfect. God has set us up for this moment, right? There's someone in the palace who's one of us. Right? There's a woman who's at the right hand of the king, and, and surely she could whisper into his ear, and, and he's got, she's got him wrapped around her pinky or something, right? Esther can do something. She's got this position, Right, some of you are in the Esther position, right, where everyone thinks that you can be the change maker in your family because of where you stand. Now, the problem is for Esther, and maybe the problem is for you, that a lot of times what people think about the power or voice that you have is not actually true. Right? Your friends say, well, you're a vice president. Can't you speak up? You're thinking, what do you think? I, I, I have no voice here. Right? I'm just one of the victims. Right? People say, well, surely they'll listen to you. They're like, they're never going to listen to me. As we look into the palace and we see Esther, we see that she was so insulated from this whole thing, she didn't even know what was happening. That Mordecai is mourning at the city gate. He's fasting. He's tearing his clothes, right? He's doing that. Oh, no, I just got our entire people killed. He's weeping. He's in shambles. And Esther's like, what's going on with Mordecai? What's wrong with him? She starts to send him clothes. She says, no, I won't wear the clothes. I won't wear the clothes. She's like, Mordecai. And finally, he sends this letter to Esther. And he says, don't you know what's happening? There's this edict that's been issued from your palace. And there's a death sentence on everyone. He says, Esther, you're in a position of power. Please do something. He begs her, please do something. And Esther goes back to Mordecai. She says, what, what do you think I'm going to do? 
Did you see what happened to the last queen who walked into the throne room or refused to? You see what happened when the last woman, the last first lady of our country tried to stand up to power just by saying, listen, don't make a mockery of me in front of your friends. Remember what happened to her? Remember what happened to Vashti? Remember why I'm in this seat in the first place? Right, you think the queen is like yielding power in this country? Mordecai, if I step into the presence of the king without an engraved invitation, he will have me killed. That's the rule. I can't even walk into the room, let alone change his mind. There's nothing I can do. I'm just going to have to face the music. And to Esther's response, Mordecai pens that, that verse that we read a little bit of last week, the most powerful, memorable, memorized verse in the book of Esther, in Esther chapter 4. He comes back to Esther, and he says this. He says, when, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. <sighs> Esther, do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And Esther, who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. So Esther, you might not have power in the palace, but let me tell you this, you don't have immunity either. Right? The same edict that's going to destroy our entire generation is going to destroy you as well. You're going to be murdered just like the rest of us. I love how Mordecai says, listen, I trust the Lord. Right? If you do nothing, God's going to save his people. That's what God does. He's the hero of the story. But Esther, in the process, our entire generation, your entire family line, you, your father's family, you're gone off the face of this earth forever. And then he kind of throws the question at her. He says, Esther, who knows? Maybe you were brought into the kingdom for this exact moment. It's interesting, when, when Esther hears that, it's like everything changes. It's funny, there's something about a question like that. Maybe you were made for this moment that unlocks something in our brain. And maybe it's the undercurrent of faith that Mordecai brought out. And maybe it's just her own faith, knowing that God has called her to do this. Maybe there's something in Mordecai's words where she realized I've got nothing to lose. I'm going to die either way. Maybe she was backed into a corner, but, but I don't think she's just reacting like a raccoon in the corner. I think Esther, something changes in her where she starts marching forward from this point on in the book. It's like something about Mordecai's question sparks in her courage and passion and conviction to do what God is calling her to do. And what Esther seems to understand at this moment, I think is the thing that all of us need to understand about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to live in this world, what it means to navigate life in decisions that are hard. Now, this is a really long thing for you to write down. You can take a picture of it if you want. But being a Christian, I think Esther understands, means making decisions based on what God tells you to do. Even if God's voice contradicts your feelings, your personality, the advice of others, or sometimes even logic itself. Nothing makes what Esther's about to do make sense. Mordecai says, you're probably going to die either way. 
I'm sure the other women in the harem would tell Esther, like, no, it's too risky, right? Esther knows, logically, if I raise my hand and say, can I have a minute, right? It's just a sword's going to come at her. There's nothing that makes what she's about to do make sense. No one in the story up to this point has had success speaking truth to the powerful regime. No one. She has an example in her own life. The reason she's in that seat today is because another woman in her exact seat said no to the king on something much more minor. There's no reason in the world that Esther should think that what she's about to do is a good idea if it wasn't for her faith in God. Her faith is the only reason. Knowing that God may have called her into this moment is the only reason that it makes any logical sense to take action. Right, there's a chance that as we walk through this series, you're in a place where you, your heart is beating, right? You're thinking, I think I need to say something about this or that. I think I need to go to the administration and bring this out. I think I need to write a letter, or I think I need to have a conversation. I think I need to schedule a meeting. I think I, I, think I need to have a heart-to-heart with my teenager, right? I think I need to, I think I need to, I think I need to, right? But what happens in those moments is everything else comes flooding into our brain to tell us all the reasons why we should not do that thing. And sometimes... The voices that come into our brains are telling the truth, right? The reason that God gives us people in our lives is because sometimes people tell us, that's a terrible idea, don't do that, and we should listen to them. But sometimes, God calls us to do things that don't make sense to anybody. Except in Esther's life, this one wise person that she loved and trusted and knew, who was saying, Esther, I... Mordecai took Esther in when her dad died. He raised her as his his daughter. Mordecai has been living at the city gate because his adopted daughter is in the palace and he's mourning and hurting for her, right? He loves Esther more than anything else. And he's saying, Esther, I know you're probably going to die, but you've got to do this. So whatever combination of reasons in her life, Esther knows that God himself is calling her to make a stand. And when God himself is calling you to take a stand, you have to do it. Like Mordecai has to, he has to not take a knee because God says, don't. From this moment in the story, everything changes. This is when we got to see God start to move. This is when we see Esther start to move. We're going to talk about all that next week. Where I want to close us today is with the moral of this story. And this is for you, the person who's not a world changer. I want to encourage you that if God has picked you to speak up, he's picked you on purpose. Right? God does not pick everyone to change the Persian Empire. God does not change everyone to change your school district. God does not change, call everyone to change the culture at your workplace. Right? But if God has picked you, he's picked you on purpose. And so this question that comes with that is, will you respond in faith and trust God with what he's calling you to do? Will you trust him? Will you step out in faith? Or maybe there's a conversation you need to have. Maybe there's a meeting you need to set up. Maybe you need to connect with someone, just have a conversation and see where it goes. Maybe there's like a a button you need to push, right? Maybe there's a nudging you need to make. Maybe there's a prayer you need to pray, right? What is that next step? If God's picked you to make it, you might be looking around saying, how come no one else is taking action, right? But the spotlight's on you. Esther doesn't say, well, how come Mordecai isn't in this room? How come one of the other women is not in this room? She's in the room. And her whole community is looking at her and saying, you are in this position of privilege in a sense, in the sense that you have access to a place that none of us have access to. Will you steward that position to bring something up that might destroy your life, destroy your career, destroy all of our people, but it just might work.
We could trust him and step out in faith. And it's funny, when we think of world changers from the Bible, we think of people like Moses, right, who stands up at the Red Sea, right, who speaks to Pharaoh. When we think of someone like David who, like, gets the sling and kills Goliath, right? We think of Jesus walking on water. We're like, okay, these are world-changing biblical people. We don't think of someone like Esther, a quiet person, an under-the-radar person. Well, the funny thing is, when we look at the lives of all these other people, including Esther, who changed the world in the scriptures, these people are all meek and humble and submissive people. We picture Moses parting the Red Sea, but, but we sometimes forget that Moses is also the man that when God tried to send him, he said, no, 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 send someone else. I said, God, I, I can't speak up. Who am I to go to Pharaoh to bring the Israelites out of Egypt? But God says to Moses, I'll be with you. You're nobody, right? You're just Moses. But, but me and Moses is a powerful combination. Right? David, who kills Goliath, Right? We see when Samuel goes to pick the new king, he sees someone standing in front of him and says, oh, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But 1 Samuel 16, 7 says that the Lord says to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. This is about someone other than David. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God says, I know something about this, this runt kid, David. He's a man after my own heart. Yeah, maybe he's not the, the best-looking person. Maybe he's not the strongest person. Maybe he's not the most suitable character to stand up against a giant, to reign over my people. But there's something in his heart that I want to use to change the world. Right, that might be nothing about you that makes you feel like a world changer. But like what we talked about last week, God in you is what changes the world. I even think of Jesus walking on water, and then he calls Peter. Hey, come on out with me. Right, this is something no human being should physically be able to do. Right? Try it. You'll fall in the water. It won't work. But there's this whole demonstration of Jesus saying, listen, the power that I'm operating by, the power of the Holy Spirit, is accessible to you. If you trust me, you can do the things that I am calling you to do, no matter how crazy they seem. You don't have to be the next Martin Luther King Jr. You don't have to be the next Mother Teresa. <laughs> but maybe you're the person that God is choosing to change the community in which he's placed you. And maybe the reason that you're in the family you're in is for such a time as this. Maybe the reason your kids are starting school at this place that has some problems that you need to address is for such a time as this. Maybe the reason that you have a classroom full of kids that look like this is for such a time as this. Maybe everyone who's poking you on the shoulder and saying, say something, say something, say something. Maybe they're right. Whatever it is that God has called you to do, if God has called you to do it, he will be with you, and his power will be the one that is doing it. Uh, whether it's taking a stand to change the world, or even if it's taking a stand to trust in him. Right, there's a chance that you're sitting here today, and right, you're really not thinking about all the things that God might want you to do to change the world. Right? You're thinking that the step of faith that God is calling you to take is a step of faith into a relationship with him. And that's the thing that terrifies you. Right, because you know you've been going through the motions of Christianity, right? You've been coming to church a little bit, or you've been hanging out with Christian people a little bit, and everyone's saying, you should be a Christian, you should be a Christian, or you should get all in, or you should dive in, or you should get baptized, right? You should give your life to Christ, right? And you're thinking, no way! I'm the last person who should ever do that. There's no way God would want me, but there's something in you. It's like God is calling you and saying, trust me. Take that step, follow me. God never calls someone to change the world without first calling them to follow him. 
Let's move the first step that God is calling you to take is to follow him in obedience, the calling he's given you to be in relationship with him, to trust Jesus with your life, to trust that Jesus' death paid for your sins, to trust that his resurrection grants life to all who believe, including you. And if you'll simply respond in faith and come to him and say, God, give me life, he will. He'll forgive your sins. He'll throw them away. He'll give you a new life. But you got to go into that throne room first and say, God, I need it. And trust that he'll be merciful to you in your time of need. And I'm telling you, he will. This morning as we close in prayer together, I want to pray for any of you that God is calling into something scary, including into relationship with him. So whatever it is God is calling you to do, let's lift that up to him together as we close in prayer. Let's pray together.